0: This episode of the Organic BC Podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, Organic BC Podcast listeners. It's your friendly local organic rancher and occasional podcast guest host, Tristan Banwell. Today you'll hear my conversation with Jacob Beaton of Tea Creek Farm. I've gotten to know Jacob a bit through our work to increase the adoption of regenerative agricultural practices in British Columbia, and I've been very impressed with the work that he's doing on indigenous skills training in a rural area of the province. So I was very grateful for the chance to sit down with him over Zoom to discuss the history of indigenous agricultural production in what's now known as British Columbia and beyond. Enjoy. Jacob Beaton, thank you so much for joining me. Let's let's start by having you introduce yourself, and please give us some of your background that eventually led up to the initiatives you are currently working on.
1: Sure. Yeah, my name is Jacob Beaton. My Indigenous travel name is Chappal Um It means busy eagle or an, or an eagle that gets things done right away. Um, my mother is Lachskeek or eagle clan, so therefore I am as well because our society is up here. Um, we're matrilineal and are matrilineal, and my dad is not indigenous um, He is from Victoria, so he was born and raised. My growing up occurred kind of between up here, where I'm up in Gitxsan territory, coming to you from Gitxsan territory near near you know Smithers and Terrace area in between there. Uh, so my growing up was kind of up here and down, down down there, down in Victoria and uh when i left high school i kind of had a feeling already then that i didn't want to be a regular kind of employed person i wanted to be an entrepreneur and um not too long out of high school i started my first business which became a significant indigenous communications agency so we turned into one of the first comprehensive agencies in the country that was indigenous owned that covered All types of communication, you know, I actually started in video production and then kind of got pulled into website design and and then print design and then book creating uh, book productions for First Nations and then community engagement and uh, working on something called free prior informed consent or FPIC won a bunch of awards never really had financial success in that business there's a whole bunch of reasons why but after about a dozen years i'd had enough and i kind of was ready to throw in the towel and um, i sold that business and um went and became a business consultant and property developer so so we we started developing properties and that was one of the best businesses i ever did it's of the core of who tea creek is now or what tea creek is now how tea creek works started then when when i had some chips on my shoulder about how indigenous people are being excluded out of our economies in bc and canada and the reasons i heard were just bs and i knew they were bs and so we were in a place where properties were so inexpensive that basically on a credit card and a line of credit, you could buy a house and renovate it, which oh, is yeah. what my wife and I started doing. And we said, we're doing it with a hundred, our goal is hundred percent indigenous, right? Like the carpenters, the, uh, the all the, all the tradespeople, the laborers, um, you know, myself managing it. So we did that. And it was hugely successful. It, it was like completely went beyond what we hoped for and financially was successful it kind of proved yeah we can do this like like we can we can run these successful businesses and we can fully staff them top to bottom with indigenous people and and be economically successful and, and successful in other ways but we really learned what we needed to do to make it successful right um all the different pieces we needed so i did that for a while and then um i was helping first nations with business planning and negotiating financing for a couple of years, and then my wife and I decided we wanted to get back to the land, and we purchased Tea Creek, what's now Tea Creek, our farm, moved here, and we basically just kept doing the same thing. We we hired uh, our local Indigenous uh, people who wanted to work, and we hired a driver to go (laughs) into the, the communities and pick people up, and we'd eat healthy food right here, right from the land, and work and you know repair fences and take fences down and get the farm back and up up and running because it had been abandoned for at least 10 years so Mm -hmm. it was it needed a lot of work Mm -hmm. so the last part of the story um, is that uh, with the um, pandemic um, I stopped traveling for work and that really took away my sort of main source of income and so we doubled down on Um, providing skills training on our farm to Indigenous people and looking for contracts to do that. And that was uh, 2020. I did all the work, the planning and the marketing and the fundraising. And then 2021 was our first full year and it was far bigger and more successful than we could have contemplated. And then last year, 2022, which was our second year, it was more of the same. It just completely, and, and and we all started winning accolades and awards, right? Like we got the BC Land Award. You know, United Nations chose us as the Food Hero for Canada for the year, which really kind of blew me away. I still suffer, I think, some of the imposter syndrome big time. Like 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 we're so we're so new and so fresh, um, but really. The reality of it is, is that Tea Creek isn't just a flash in the pan. It is a culmination of my life's work and my life experience, uh, both personally and professionally. And so I think that's why it's one of the reasons why it's taken off. We're just in the right place at the right time with the right set of um, skills and experience to make it um, work.
0: And an amazing model that we'll get into later on. But before we get to that, let's go way, way back and maybe do a little bit of myth busting here i think there's a persistent myth in our society that indigenous peoples here prior to contact were all hunter-gatherers and that food systems Mm -hmm. at the time amounted essentially to wandering about in a vast untamed wilderness collecting the bounty of plants and wildlife what kind of food Mm -hmm. systems had actually been developed by the indigenous peoples of what we now call british columbia and beyond prior to colonization
1: yeah great question um so one If we go way way back you know to 1492 when columbus stumbled into um this side of the world and uh in and that sparked off the whole sort of um rush to colonize the new world eventually um what columbus arrived to were the taino like that that was the indigenous people who were welcomed columbus and his crew um, and they were bean farmers. So it turns out that over 80% of the world's edible beans today are uh, were domesticated by indigenous people on this side of the world over many thousands of years of, of farming. And and then on the whole, that whole side of what's now North Central South America, indigenous peoples were completely what we now would call agricultural, like and had been for a long time. So so going right up to um, you know Hudson's Bay and all the way down to you know southern tip of South America people were were actively um, cultivating their environment to produce an abundance of food and that's what Europeans discovered and, and and if you look at the contemporary accounts from the European side we have to remember that Europe at the time was was poor um, compared to the rest of the world and you can see that we just went to Europe and it's fascinating It's it's like you look at the buildings over there and what a difference between anything that's older than 1500 and anything that's newer than 1600. Mm-hmm. The 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 size and wealth and the construction they go from like a maximum two story building to these large <laughs> 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 opulent structures. And it's interesting because a lot of that is is due to growth drivers from this part of the world. Because uh, if you go back and look at that historical record one of the biggest pieces of wealth that was brought back to the old world europe wasn't just gold mm-hmm. <laughs> and silver it, it were it was it, were the, it was food it was the mm-hmm. crops that were um, cultivated and domesticated and were one of the big prizes like that's one of the first things the spanish brought back was was, was food crops so when we look at the food families that indigenous peoples were farming that's you know potatoes corn squash Sunflowers <laughs> were domesticated over here. Peppers, um, all, all of, you know, uh, tomatoes. I mentioned beans uh, and I'm sure there's a bunch more I'm forgetting, I mean, um, avocados. I mean, the list kind of goes on, right? It's, it's, it's a fairly lengthy list. And um, on this part, what's now BC, um, indigenous peoples at the time, you know, uh, more than 500 years ago, 600 years ago, um, we're manipulating and w- the food systems. The reason I'm saying manipulating food systems, if you go into the dictionary and you look up the word agriculture, let's start with mm-hmm. that. The the dictionary definition basically says something like this. It's very simple. It says the manipulation of soil to produce food. And so for us as indigenous people, we just kind of extend it to manipulation of soil at any food system to produce food. Because my ancestors on the northwest coast were farming clams and um, cockles. And they had underwater terraces that they were maintaining. That's now considered one of the wonders of the world, mm-hmm. you know, for, for these underwater structures that were massive in size and scope that, you know, you could see they were first rediscovered from an airplane because you can wow. see them the underwater structures yeah. here on the northwest coast of of what's now bc so um yeah so they they were using for example i'll give you a couple more examples um they had developed gill nets before europeans arrived mm-hmm. um they they um, developed uh ulican nets like the small like for catching like herring ulican sized fish um they developed duck nets which are fascinating i i learned about that they were banned and which we'll get into as part of the timeline but a lot of these tools and technologies that indigenous peoples developed to cultivate um foods and domesticate foods were actually made illegal um post-colonization to mm-hmm. literally break and, and and undermine indigenous food systems mm-hmm. the other thing that indigenous peoples were doing here is they're growing potatoes so um there's that ar- so there's that archaeological record um, and anthropological, like going back in the oral history, and um, seeing that indigenous peoples um, on the coast were were farming potatoes, but a more a more localized indigenous food crop was, um, for example, on the coast was called the great camus, great camus, mm-hmm. which was a domesticated variety, very similar to nightshade. So camus, um, decorative like camus that you might normally see, it's it's a uh, poisonous plant. And you don't want to eat it, <laughs> much like nightshades, like the 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 t- potatoes, tomatoes, eggplant, pepper family. They're also poisonous. And so, what indigenous peoples in the on the what is now southern coast of Vancouver Island, they had fields and fields and fields and fields as far as the eye could see. And their cash crop was, was a plant called great camus. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so when Europeans first arrived to this side, it was much later. It was the you know more like the 1700s mid, middle of the 1700s that europeans started to push into what's now british columbia and um indigenous people were it's one of the things they noted were abundant in food every single account i've read of the the er, early early europeans who arrived they describe eden is one of the words they use it's like eden um they describe fields villages on either end of a field um people cultivating roots root crops in the field Um, in one of the earliest accounts i read it basically said that indigenous peoples were getting their proteins from the sea and their their um their starches and their carbohydrates from root vegetables that they cultivate in these fields so that's what they saw when they arrived um yeah so it it's it's a fascinating discussion to get into because the modern lens is that indigenous people were not agricultural and the definition, the modern definition of agriculture in BC has been changed to exclude indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it's, it's really strange because if you go and you look at even just the Webster's dictionary <laughs> definition of agriculture, it's so clear. It just says manipulation of a soil you know, system to produce food. And, and Indigenous people are definitely doing that mm-hmm. before Europeans arrived, after Europeans arrived, right? So, um, and 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 so what we're finding as, as a, we're researching Indigenous food systems and the evolution of them and, uh, you know, where they were pre-contact, post-contact, colonization, post-colonization, is that um, there's a real hesitancy to ever acknowledge that they were agriculture, And -hmm. so we're finding in material reviews, they'll say something like, oh, the First Nation of such and such had intricate, uh, intentional horticulture systems to Mm -hmm. cultivate, you know, the the whatever species to produce clothing or baskets or food. Mm -hmm. So they'll say like an intricate horticulture system. (laughs) They won't won't say agriculture. Tripping over
0: themselves to not acknowledge that agricultural history.
1: Yes, yes, yes and it's really crazy because this is a modern a modern rewriting of history that didn't exist in in the contemporary times back then if you go and you look at you read the accounts of what um Europeans were saying when they when they arrived into what's now BC and what they described um you know they they were using words like farming and agriculture and abundant food and you know things like that right like they were quite in awe with the food system so compared to what they were
0: what they came from in europe they were they arrived here and viewed this as a as a wealthy society
1: as a wealthy society you know because i'm thinking back to captain cook's cruise journals when they arrived and so it turns out captain cook who is british uh, english british wasn't the first to arrive on the west coast but in our kind of Canadian colonial school system it's like oh he was the first but no no it turns out the Russians have been there before probably the Spanish certainly the Chinese I mean you there's now evidence that the, you know West Coast artifacts are showing up in China and Chinese coins are being found you know in architect or archaeological digs here in BC and right. in, in, in Indigenous village sites and the fun thing too is if you go back into those are those contemporary records Indigenous people weren't surprised at all to see the British. It wasn't like, <laughs> like, like I, you know, I learned that there was almost like, like the the indigenous people worship them as like white saviors or gods mm-hmm. coming from the heavens and on wings or something hilarious like that. Like that's the kind of bullshit I was right. uh, fed in elementary school. And then um, when I actually was reading through the journals, it was just it was so straightforward. It was almost like business transaction. It's like they they come out in their massive canoes. To these ships and they greet them and they're like hey come on in and, and let's let's you know let's sit down and 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 get to business right mm-hmm. like let's do some trading and uh and that's where they mislabeled them right because apparently the um the, you know the malchut people were likely saying come around the the cape come around the cape, come around the cape. Mm-hmm. And it sounded something like Nutka, Nutka. And so they were like, oh, they're telling us they're the Nutka. And they're like, no, no, we're just giving you directions. Like <laughs> like this is how this is how you get into the this is how you get into our safe harbor, right? Where you can park your ships and drop your anchor. Anyway, so so um yeah, so they arrive and what I recall from that is they were so blown away by the wealth of the people that it led to essentially a rush, you know, like we'd call it a gold rush. Mm-hmm of ships to the west coast to take advantage of this incredible wealth because um, captain cook and his crew wrote back that the people were opulently dressed that they were in these massive houses bigger than what they're used to seeing that were incredibly well constructed that they had an abundance of food and that they were feasted every night Um, and so the reports got back to home that hey these people are dressing in clothes that only the wealthiest of the wealthy can afford in england Mm -hmm. and um, what i remember is that within a few years the number of ships european ships visiting the malcha went from like one or two a year in less than 10 years there was hundreds hundreds visiting right so the word spread and they were spanish americans russians french british everybody was coming to get a piece of the action and they weren't coming to just shake hands they were coming because uh, nations on the west coast were were wealthy in terms of the european view they had mm-hmm. something valuable to offer in that case it was furs. that's what they wanted they wanted the otter pelts and the beaver pelts and the all the other furs so mm-hmm. yeah so so it's it's an interesting thing where you where you um for me it really shook me awake when i read that i that was over 20 years ago mm-hmm. and i was like whoa this is not what I learned in school. Oh, right. And it's and it's funny because it's the European viewpoint and mm-hmm. and and we're in a European system and we're not even learning the truth in our European system of what Europeans thought, right? Like like we're learning the modern propaganda of what we would like you to think about indigenous okay. people. We'd like you to think that they were backward savages and living in loin, wearing loincloths and right. carving with stone, stone tools and, and just you know, up what hunting. They
0: incidentally found around themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just going out with a bow and arrow and Hoping to find a deer to shoot or something and for dinner, right? Also, no, yeah.
0: no surprise that uh, that during that time people were arriving and there was already they were ready to trade. There was already a system in place because those food systems that existed at the time. I, I know living in Statlium territory in a major trading hub where coastal peoples came and indi- uh, interior peoples came, and the salmon mm-hmm. trade and the Ulikin Trail and all of that. I mean, There's already extensive trade networks throughout throughout yeah. the continent
1: absolutely and and so what we have is a very complicated history that i think first of all we need to just acknowledge how long and complex this history is if you go to europe and you look at a 500 600 year span of history it encompasses a lot of developments and you mm-hmm. couldn't just say that a society in europe is backwards mm-hmm. based on one episode from one piece of that 600 year history right and And it's the same thing with our indigenous history Mm -hmm. is to be fair, we need to look at the full spectrum of the history. Cause if you look at indigenous people, um, being living in poverty and, and resorting to hunting, gathering, um, just going out and hoping to find food, that's a very modern, um, happening Mm -hmm. that is a direct result of being forced off of our land Mm -hmm and being forced away from our abundant land and into land that's non-abundant and is not productive Mm -hmm. and not being cultivated so like if you even look at the maps of where indian reserves are in british columbia most of them have been relocated Mm -hmm. away from where they were originally Mm -hmm. um for various reasons in some cases it was simply to free up agricultural land like get indigenous people off of the productive land and push them off into a marginal space where they they, they can't produce and in some cases those relocations were so violent that they were 100 percent genocidal mm-hmm. um so and, and it happened recently mm-hmm. so there was a community up here that was given no notice to relocate and they were relocated many hundreds of kilometers away from their territory and they re- relocated literally onto like this, onto rocks, you know, where nothing could grow and they couldn't even bring their tools with them. So they had to leave behind their fishing nets, they had to leave behind their, their rifles and their ammunition. And so they got pushed into this marginal, no roads to even access it. And of course it was incredibly destructive and that nation is still very much living with the consequences of that experience that trauma Mm -hmm. um, today and it wasn't that long ago you know that was the 60s yeah that was 1960s right like like this is not ancient history in Canada and so you look at those people who had sophisticated food systems they had beautiful fishing nets and traps and guns and fields Mm -hmm. and rototillers they had to abandon all of it in the 60s and to call them hunter-gatherers traditionally is just wrong
0: right so let's let's even go back so that that history is even more recent but as yes. colonization proceed um, proceeded yeah. there was of course there were that the, the people who were here began to interact with and adapt to yes. and adopt settler food production systems. So how, how did people take to that farming and ranching in those days? What did that look like before the disruptions?
1: It's a great, great, great question. So yeah, my understanding is that there was a interchange. It is actually technically called an interchange mm-hmm. between Europe and they actually call it the Colombian interchange, which I find a terrible <laughs> word <laughs> after Christopher Columbus. You know, like, can we please just erase that guy's right. history? Yes. <laughs> I really, what a horrible dude he was. Like, um, and um, But it's called the Columbian Interchange. And the basic idea is that Europeans greatly benefited from not only indigenous seeds and um, domesticated crops that have been domesticated over thousands and thousands of years, but they also benefited from indigenous um, knowledge, like how to cultivate food more efficiently. So so if you go back in that agricultural timeline, the greatest European innovation was the was the ox drawn plow. Mm -hmm. That was their big thing. And the food production in Europe at the time was small scale, surf based, right, Mm -hmm. like, fairly marginal. And um, when Europeans came over here, they saw these collective agricultural Uh, productions that were larger scale they did we did things here called intercropping now today Um, and um, um, putting phosphorus into the soil like there's there's a lot of things back then like I was I was researching and I was kind of blown away by that like some of the modern European chemical fertilizers actually trace origins to indigenous um, farmers who would collect them from tar pits Mm -hmm. Wow. and 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 refined into sort of medicines and fertilizers. I was like, what? Like wow. I was researching. I was like, what? I've never heard this. Um, kind of like maple syrup, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a modern myth that maple syrup, they were boiling rocks and putting it in a super primitive. And it turns out, no, not at all. In fact, when Europeans arrived, they had already had special vessels designed just to concentrate maple syrup and that they taught Europeans how to do this. And Europeans adapted that technique of, of of distilling this the sap into syrup and it's what we have today our modern process is a direct copy of this many hundreds of years old Iroquois process and container technology that was already there and already in place so um so when we're looking back at that there was this real interchange and um I know indigenous farmers and ranchers here adapted very quickly so what I was told is that they would get sketches of how things were done in Europe mm-hmm. and they'd get inspired by it. And in, in where we're from up here, Indigenous people were master carpenters. Like everything they made was out of wood. Your clothing was made out of wood fiber. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you know, it was woven wood fiber. Your your houses were wood. Like they relied heavily on wood and wood products to make everything from their weirs to their clothes to their um, their spades and tools to the houses they lived in. So they would see these pictures, and I had this elder who's almost 100 years old tell me this: that they would see a picture, and they would they would be treasures, they, like 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 a, a clip out of a newspaper clipping, or um, you said later, like in the 19 early 1900s, late 1800s, 1900s, they would covet magazines, mm-hmm. you know, like books right. that would come from Europe, and they would study the photos, and they would literally make copies. Mm-hmm. So one example, and there's no standing example today. This is how old they are is in the victorian era there was a a specific design of house which became known as the victorian house those were all over indigenous communities and they did it all based on sketches that they saw and they copied it off of a sketch and i heard the story and then i was up here in the north going through one of the archives and I found them. I found the wow. photos of these yeah. these Victorian houses with these big white pillars out the front and these big decks. So this would have been, you know, so in BC, 17 mid 1700s is when, when Europeans started kind of arriving here in BC. And already by the early 1800s, like this is like a generation, two generations later, um, indigenous people already have copies of the houses in Europe mm-hmm. in their communities. Um, they built the churches up here, were all built off of sketches and merged with indigenous ideas of building, and they built them all themselves from scratch without any Europeans. They just like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this. Um and then what this elder told me is they had an incomplete um, industry. so hat makers, shoemakers, clothing makers, um, mechanics, you know, and 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 he started telling me this, and I was like, what? Mm-hmm. what you know uh blacksmiths and uh i research it 100 percent true so so if we're moving along the timeline by the early 1800s uh what what indigenous farmland looked like as it was fenced as they started to fence it but they were collectively fencing they were and it they, they was practical fencing it wasn't to mark property lines it was just hey we got to keep our cattle in mm-hmm. right so cattle was something that indigenous people got here through that that exchange, interchange, um, and horses. Horses were already widespread. Um, and uh, the, the ranch and farmlands would have been maintained pre-contact through burnings, control like seasonal burns. And what I've been learning is they would dig trenches around where they wanted their fields, and then they would plant um, water species in these low-lying areas and then they would burn and then the fires wouldn't go past the trenches with the ferns and the mm-hmm. water species mm-hmm. would be the fire breaks so those that evolved into um, the ranching farming practice and what I was reading is that it turns out the the burning of uh, indigenous burning of ranch ranches made them really successful because not only did it put phosphorus back in the soil it also killed any uh, ticks and diseases mm. and so their cattle would be, renowned for being healthy mm-hmm. so um early 1800s it looks i mean indigenous farms and ranches look as you would expect them to look they're large they have many hundreds sometimes thousands of heads of cattle um they're all over bc so here in gitsan territory there were um, gitsan were relatively wealthy um in the williams lake area in your area statlame area there were huge um, orchards and ranches that were all statlame owned and operated and i met some of the descendants of those um, and uh, yeah, they were fenced, they had big root sellers, it was in every way a modern thriving economy. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I read an article that said in the early 1800s, um, up to 98% of the British Columbia economy was driven by Indigenous business people. So what I read is that the mail, all the, tele, all the mail moved by Indigenous owned pack trains, um the grocery stores were almost all run by indigenous people um the farms and ranch lands if you were a white family settling and you wanted to get your ranch up and running you would hire your local indigenous families who would come in and and do it for you and with you and so back then um here in BC um a lot of what it, there was conflict but a lot of what I what I've been reading and hearing is that people more or less were friends mm-hmm. like more or less mm-hmm. right like, like like they were like indigenous people were happy to have non-indigenous guests on their territory and land as long as they weren't hurting anything or destroying anything and it turns out that's also a traditional european value in a lot of countries like in in germany their the right to roam and the right to occupy land is culturally embedded mm-hmm. so if you want to go camp on a farmer's field you are allowed to, if you want to go walk through a farm, as long as you're not damaging anything, mm-hmm. you're allowed. And if it's only when you want to take something that you over there, you have to ask, you have to say, Hey, can I pick your flowers or can I pick some carrots or whatever? And I've experienced that having lived there, I've experienced that. And so I could see how initially there's some meshing, right? Like, like, cause that's, that would be the indigenous way as well Is like, Hey, yeah, you're welcome. Guests are high priority yeah we've got lots of land. Go ahead, you know, as long as you're not um, disruptive and trying to take it or take things, steal things then 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 you can be here and we can be better together right
0: And there was so. a lot of a lot of success there. You've mentioned to me before uh, early records of the fall fairs and and indigenous yes. prowess in these new agricultural yes. systems.
1: the oldest rodeo. Uh, This is really good to get the cowboys up, but it's 100% true. And it's actually, I think, being acknowledged more and more. The oldest continually running rodeo and oldest period in BC is an Indigenous rodeo. And that is actually up here in Getsana Territory, Kispiox, BC. Started the first and longest running cowboy show in British Columbia. It still happens every year there. And they uh, used to have it on reserve. And I've seen photos from it and it was something else, man. Like it was incredible. Like it was a full on real rodeo with incredible skills on display. Yes. And um, yeah. And I'm really glad to see the acknowledgement because for a while it was totally co-opted by non-Indigenous people and mm. basically taken over and that history kind of ignored. So it's good to see the, <laughs> the truth being acknowledged, but that like, imagine like that's what the culture was like. And that was actually in the very early 1900s. So so, um, yeah, the fall fairs, you know, in the prairies especially, were being dominated for a time in the mid-1800s and, um, and towards the late 1800s by Indigenous farmers who are winning awards for, you know, innovation and quality and best new cultivars. And it's a sad fact that the Indian Act, which was introduced in the 1880s, is partially a result of lobbying from two places two main places so it's fascinating that we're having this conversation because it really came out of British Columbia the colony of British Columbia and the later province of BC Mm -hmm. was freaked out because their economy was so dominated by indigenous people and up until mm, when was it 19 late 1920s a majority of the population was indigenous in BC Mm -hmm. so they were just terrified that there's going to be an uprising and that non-indigenous people are just going to get kicked out after the indigenous people got sick and tired right so bc was a big part of indian act and then another one was the farmers in the prairies who were suffering because they were having a hard time competing uh, allegedly with indigenous um, collectivist farmers Mm -hmm. so but the other thing that happened too in the prairies is you know um the government promised through the treaty system they promised to supply, they wanted indigenous people to commit to being um, European style farmers. So they promised them plows and cows and horses and tools. And once they became successful, they reneged on those, all those promises. So today you'll have what you will see um, a TRM treaty related measure um, being negotiated in any of those first nations with treaties. And that's because basically you know, our modern government is supposed to follow their own rules and their own laws, and they're oh, First Nations, you know, millions of cows that right. they never right. <laughs> that they reneged on. So, so now the now the now the discussion is okay, how do you how do you compensate you know today for a million cows that were never provided that were promised in these treaties? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, and so what happened with Indian Act is very very it was a pile on. So the way I describe this, um, Tristan, is that you have Indigenous people who one thing we're not talking about is the massive population collapse as a result of European disease. Right. Right. And that was going back to the 1500s all the way. We didn't even get
0: into that. But I mean, the estimates estimates of what the population was prior to contact and then colonization continues to go up and up and up with further research.
1: Well, now they're saying, I mean, back when I started researching this and when I, 20 years ago, they were saying, oh yeah, it was probably six, seven million indigenous Mm -hmm. people. Now they're saying it's 30, maybe 30 to 40 million. Mm -hmm. You know, basically North America was full, like it wasn't empty. It was literally full. And this is why um, some of the early settlements on the East coast uh, failed is that there was no good land where they were allowed to settle. They had to settle on rocks. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. So anyhow, so, so just, what I want to say is, despite those incredible losses of population that were incredibly traumatic, somehow Indigenous people survived and thrived and became, in a lot of places, economically successful. Mm-hmm. And, and so in the late 1800s, um, going through more rounds of disease and losses, the government really started to claw back on um, on the food security of Indigenous people. So... Just in a really quick summary, things that they did is you weren't allowed to own land. So a lot of people don't know this, but Indigenous men actually had the right to vote in Canada originally. Mm -hmm. That got taken away Mm -hmm. through this disenfranchisement. Okay, So you couldn't vote. You're no longer legally a human. You could not own land uh, privately. And so what did they do while there was all this land in BC that was functionally privately owned by first nations it was their land and they were occupying it they were using it they had ranches and farms with thousands and millions of acres of production so so it was a gradual clawback it wasn't a flick of a switch they passed the laws making it illegal but they didn't enforce it they couldn't they didn't have the manpower and the means to take the land all at once so it happened over a period of years from the 1880s early 1880s all the way through until the 1970s Mm -hmm. so it was a gradual step-by-step erosion and destruction of of the indigenous um, food economy and agriculture economy
0: and it wasn't just the the indian act there was a kind of a raft of racist government policies and some of which are lesser known that impacted the abilities of of indigenous people to access yes. farmland tools and markets and can yes you, you got dwell it well for a few minutes on a bit of that ugly sure. history
1: yeah so there were a series of policies that were um in place in uh starting in the late 1880s 1888 um and one was called the peasant policy so peasant policy uh meant that you weren't allowed to farm using modern tools and equipment you couldn't have a tractor for example if you're an indigenous farmer wow. um, and you could only farm with hand tools uh, and, and uh, so rakes and shovels and such um, another one was the pass and permit system which um, was actually broadly in effect and I know for it's, a lot of articles say it was only in the prairies but I know for a fact it was here in BC because it's all over the evidence so the pass and permit system um, said that you could not um, leave a reserve, Indian reserve, to purchase anything without a pass, to leave the reserve so it was a pass. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't buy anything at a store without a permit, which is permission to purchase something. Mm-hmm. And so the pass and permit system was used to um, stop Indigenous people from buying seeds and I- inputs for food production. So they weren't allowed. Indian agents were instructed across the country to not issue passes or permits if an indigenous person wanted to buy anything for food production, uh, farming, or otherwise. Um, The last one that's probably, might be the most shocking to people, if those ones weren't shocking enough, was called the severance, severance policy. And it's exactly how it sounds, is designed to sever people from their land. So, um, and it was designed to bust up all the collective indigenous farms. So if you're indigenous, you're not allowed to own more than 20 acres of land period and and so all the large collective um, farms and ranches that were thousands of acres um, were either completely taken away and removed or they were reduced down to 20 acre parcels and, and split up and you couldn't hold more than 20 acres so um so that's the severance policy and as i've mentioned that lives on today on reserves where there's still a lot of reserves that were parceled up back then um, and um you cannot get more than twenty acres as an ind- individual on on reserve. So I mentioned it, but a a good friend of mine, he's an indigenous farmer here in BC and he's hit his twenty acre limit mm-hmm. and he can't get more. so um, the last part of that that's really ridiculous is you could not, and this is still functionally in effect today through institutional policies like banks and such, is you could not. Get financing to farm. So, I was in that Senate committee, and my co-speaker touched on this. But basically, as an Indigenous farmer, it's nearly impossible to get the CALA loans, the Canadian agricultural, what's it called, land access. I can't remember CALA what it stands for, but it's a it's a federal federal program to support farmers and ranchers to uh, conduct business. And he he said on that stand-up committee that um, a non-Indigenous person can easily access this loan and ranch on reserve or farm on reserve land like lease it, but an Indigenous farmer or rancher can't. Today, in 2023, like that he had been fighting for 20 years to open up this federal loan program so Indigenous people could access it. But he said today in the prairies, most Indigenous farmland that's reserve land is farmed by non-Indigenous people simply because Indigenous people are still impacted in 2023 by all those policies I just mentioned. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And so yet there's so much opportunity there. And I was reading from the census data that um, in the 2016 census, we were seeing, for example, the number of indigenous agricultural operators over that period, uh, 10 year period. Actually, I think it's a, yeah, sorry. So over that 20 year period from 1996 to 2016, indigenous agricultural operators increased 53.7 percent, while Mm -hmm. non-indigenous, the total or the total number of agricultural operators declined by 30 percent over that same time period. So it's certainly not from a lack of of interest or desire to be there working on the land and working in agriculture.
1: Not at all. Like so many of the places I work and in the nations I interact with, we all have a deeply ingrained memory of being farmers, Mm -hmm. ranchers, or I'm just going to say indigenous agriculturists because my relatives on the coast, you know, in my mind were agriculturists because they were cultivating the ocean for food. Um, So, and, and we really can't exclude that because, you know, we're we're using indigenous technology today to farm cockles that are market products, right, in the ocean. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so so it is part of our history, it is part of our culture, and there's a huge, huge drive in indigenous people to get back to this. And that's, I think the important thing for people to understand, we're not doing something new, we're doing something we've always done, and we're trying to get back to it. And because it was unjustly and wrongly taken away from us and our ancestors um, not that long ago. I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, forced relocations, like I said, we're still happening in the 1970s. Indigenous children are still being stolen and taken away in the 70s. Like, it's not very far um, back in our history. So the other thing I just wanted to touch on, Tristan, I know, and this is kind of, I think, more of a conversation, but I find it you know, there's so much dissonance in mainstream thinking around the subject of Indigenous people and agriculture mm-hmm. specifically, where, like I said, we'll have a mainstream definition of agriculture that so clearly includes Indigenous people producing food historically and, you know, through time. And yet we're saying, no, you're hunter-gatherer and mm-hmm. Europeans are agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, And then another one that drives me mad is the idea of what is traditional indigenous agriculture let's talk about that for a second because because it drives me a little bit up the wall that nobody would contest somebody saying that the sunflower represents ukraine and that's their traditional symbol Mm -hmm. despite the fact that the sunflower comes from indigenous people in north america okay but yet it's a traditional ukrainian cultural Thing to have sunflowers and have it be their symbol today of cultural strength and resilience. It also isn't unusual to call tomatoes Italian and pasta, tomato pasta, and tomato sauce on pizza. That this, if I used to say no, you cannot call that traditional Italian because it's tomatoes came from indigenous people. It's not your tradition, Italians. <laughs> like, like, can you imagine being on like an Italian TV show and being like, no, <laughs> <Take back laughs> tomatoes are in. not.
0: Yeah, yeah, you cannot <laughs> call that traditional Italian food. And the potatoes from the Irish <laughs> as well.
1: And the Germans. Oh, my goodness. Try telling Germans <laughs> that potatoes are not part of their culture. Like, no, you cannot be a German and eat potatoes. Right. Like you cannot you cannot be a traditional German farm and grow potatoes, mm-hmm. which come from the indigenous people of South and Central America yeah. and North America. Um, and yet, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Like, And yet and yet, um, you know, despite the fact that our ancestors used tractors, mm-hmm. were some of the earliest adopters of tractors of cows, horses, you know, and integrated it quickly into their culture and their way of practicing. I'm not allowed to say that tractors are traditional indigenous agriculture. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to say that a horse is a part of indigenous traditional agriculture, even though horses were introduced 600 years ago. And even you though know, those, around even, the same time as potatoes. Yeah,
0: even though those cattle are grazing on open grassland prairie lands that were maintained through yeah. the previous uh, generations and and uh, past practices that maintain them in that way. Totally. It's...
1: Yeah, I, I, I find this part really, really disturbing, almost like this kind of eugenic, um, re- super racist way of thinking that we have in Canada that we're not even aware of when we think these thoughts that like, oh yeah, it's okay for me as a German Canadian, potatoes are totally part of my culture mm-hmm. and tradition. And but you're indigenous and you can't have cows and you can't have horses and you can't have tractors and you can't have cars and you can't have rototillers, you know, like 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 to me, there's a massive dissonance there in that thinking, you know that that Europeans are allowed to claim traditional indigenous agricultural practices and crops as their tradition. Mm-hmm. And we're not allowed to claim the European technologies that we've integrated in agricultural practices and crops as our tradition. So one example is fried bread. I can't tell you how many non-indigenous people have smirked, you know, at a gathering, indigenous gathering where there's fried bread and been like, "Oh yeah, it's not traditional because it's made with wheat and wheat came from Europe." Ha 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 ha. ha. <laughs> 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 and it's, it's like, well, "Why can't you know, second. like it's wait a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, 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 how about you go take the sunflowers back from Ukraine then? And, you know, like, yeah, so it's, it's uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of dissonance and a lot of disconnect and, and I find it very, very troublesome and we run into it all the time where it has huge impacts on us because we'll get denied funding because we use tractors mm-hmm. and that's not considered traditional in the eyes of a non-Indigenous person.
0: And right now we're seeing this big swell in interest in regenerative agricultural principles and techniques and technologies, uh, Mm -hmm. many of which are rooted in ancient Indigenous practices from all around the world, of course, which makes good sense to me because you can't maintain a food production system on a landscape for tens of thousands of years unless you are thinking about long term and making short-term decisions that improve long-term outcomes and learning from things that have gone wrong so how how do you see right now with all of that interest well we'll get we'll get into what's going on at tea Creek but just in general how do those kind of principles and philosophies of sustainable and regenerative agriculture align with indigenous values and how do you see people interest building interest in that
1: well yeah I see. Regenerative agriculture as being a, a piece of, of indigenous agriculture, in just in the sense that um, all indigenous agriculture was um, it, it was it was regenerative. And the indigenous peoples that we interact with on our farm, who want to relearn and reclaim um, their culture and history of agriculture, want to do it in a regenerative fashion. Like they're not interested in in conventional sort of the more destructive types of agriculture Mm -hmm. Um, and and that so far has been a hundred percent like we haven't had anybody out of the you know 1400 plus people who've come here say yeah I want to I don't want to do it in this sort of regenerative way I want to do it in this sort of conventional way so um, I can only you know from that sample size i can only say that like it seems like um we as indigenous people are really interested in in the care of the land and the rebuilding of land and um that um we know it was because it was done previously in a really successful way we know it can be successful again mm-hmm. um and yeah so that's 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 like my quick view on the regenerative agriculture i think i think how it's done um you know my push has been that indigenous people can and should be given a lead on this um, because of that statistic you mentioned there's a huge drive of indigenous people from indigenous people to get into food production Mm -hmm. um at all levels and there's no convincing required that they're good like you know (laughs) because we've had this debate right like okay if you take your existing farmers who are steeply declining and there's just not enough mainstream non-indigenous farmers going coming into it to fill the gap um and and there's this discussion like how much resources do we have to spend to convince them to do that regeneratively right like you're starting a new ranch mm-hmm. you know here's my pamphlet on regenerative ranching and please choose it instead of regular ranching right. um and instead we could just say like well let's just power up indigenous people who want to
0: start a ranch
1: and they're just going to want it to be regenerative they're not going to want to it to be a conventional operation mm-hmm.
0: and so that's looks like that's there's a huge opportunity to engage indigenous communities and people as leaders in this in this shift mm-hmm. as we move forward so let's talk about T Creek the innovative indigenous skills training program you founded can you dive in more to what you're working on there what makes it special and how the programs have been received by participants
1: yeah um so what makes it special is that we're indigenous-led meaning there's a majority of indigenous people making the decisions every day on our site um it is land-based so our work and learning happens outdoors on the land as much as possible and uh, the last one that makes it really special is that it's culturally safe Mm -hmm. so we work from as much as possible from an indigenous uh, perspective and make decisions from within an indigenous cultural framework rather than a mainstream one as much as possible so we have our own internal manifesto and one of the things it says is that if there's a conflict between like a mainstream, regular way of doing business or making a decision and an indigenous one, we're gonna choose the indigenous one um, as a way. So um, that's the three key ingredients we're working with. And there's a whole bunch of detail you know, behind each of those three, three, three things. And it's been really successful by all measures so far. So we just keep going uh, and experiencing far more participation than we anticipate, way more engagement. Um, when you look at the people who come here for dedicated training and they complete their training, uh, first of all, the majority of people who come here complete. So that's the first one. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is if you break that one down further, a majority, a large majority, like 75, 80%, are moving, are becoming what we call active, like they're moving into employment, self employment. Mm-hmm you know, further training of some kind. And that's so important because if you look at where people are at coming into our programming, it's the opposite. So we're coming in with 77% of people who enroll and register here at Tea Creek, Indigenous people, 77% face what we call a deal breaking barrier, meaning they're facing a barrier so significant that they would not normally be able to go to work or start a business or go to school or, you know, be active in that way. So, so the fact that we're able to work with that reality of people coming in and then have some really good success here on our site and then have, see people moving out into, into activity and being able to, to, um, overcome some of those barriers, not all of them, but some of them mm-hmm. is, is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal. We you know our engagement numbers here the people the amount of people we work with is just right off the chart like it's so much higher than we expected and i think anybody um expected so yeah
0: and can you um if you don't mind maybe some of those numbers of of how many people are are coming through in some sure. of the dedicated training programs how many people that these programs are touching in general and then sketch out for us what what types of trainings, because we haven't even really gone into detail, but what types of trade programs or what types of trade training are available there at T Creek?
1: Yeah. So, um, in terms of numbers, our first year, we had 150 people register half of those indigenous people were youth and we were funded for about 25 of the 75 who registered. We still worked with the full 75 and then, and then, um, we had another 75 that were adults indigenous adults who enrolled for dedicated uh, training a lot of it in things like agriculture heavy equipment operation carpentry professional cook those are like our probably our most popular um, trainings and um, after our first year 2021 we reported out our engagements so in 2021 and if you looked at all of those registrations plus we had another thousand or so people on top of that come uh indigenous people come for like one day or just a workshop or um something a farm tour and uh we reported out that we had introduced over 450 indigenous people to trades so an example is we have a high school class an indigenous class come to our farm And we're like, Hey, this is heavy equipment operation. This is a trade. This is a career. Here's what it looks like. Anybody want to jump on the tractor and try the loader, you know, and then, Mm -hmm. Oh, Hey, here's the carpenters and they're building, you know, this is a job if you like to build things or you like to, if this, you know, this is a really good career and a good trade and it's called carpentry. So that's called introduction to trades. So we did that with about, about 450 times Mm -hmm. over in 2021. And, 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 We had no idea we were doing something revolutionary (laughs) until, (laughs) until I went to present our report to the industry training authority, uh, at the end of the year. And I went down to Richmond and I did a little PowerPoint and they were just gasping and I, and I said, I stopped and I said, I looked at one of them. I said, what's going on. And they looked at me and they said, um, so you just engaged more indigenous people in one year at tea Creek than all of our other programs in the province put together. (laughs) so so they were really really impressed and and i and last year they brought their board of directors here they brought their their executive staff here to tea creek to see what we're doing because we're making a noise in that world for um being able to actually meaningfully and effectively engage indigenous people in the area of trades um and and who wouldn't want to be engaged in trades on a farm right like it's the best place to learn as you and I know, you know, your dad was a tradesperson, my dad was a tradesperson and you know there's there's nothing like you can talk carpentry all you want, it's a completely different thing when dad says, "Hey, let's go build something. Let's go work on this in the workshop. Mm-hmm. Let's go." You know, and then it engages you and you're you're involved and maybe you get into it, right? So, um yeah, so that's that's the basic history of the numbers. Last year it was more ridiculous. you know. We basically almost doubled our numbers because what happened is we had less, our funding came in even later and became more compressed last year. So we operated a really truncated season. So instead of going January to December, like we did in 2021, we went from April to October. And in that April to October window, we had 183 indigenous people register for dedicated training. Um, so wanting to come and you know engage in trades training, some serious training. And um, we were funded for 50. And uh, then we had an extra at minimum 1,200 other indigenous individuals come to us for at least a one day training or experience on top of that 183 so um and then we served 7000 meals on our site we distributed 20000 pounds of uh, vegetables from our fields into the communities uh we did 5000 pounds in just one day that was just absolutely amazing um so yeah yeah like like the, it's it's kind of scary because of how quickly it's growing and um we're really been rattling government to say you guys need to get on board like we really need your support because we're providing health care services so 87 percent of people who come through our program say they've enjoyed significant physical or mental health benefits from being here yes yes and yet we don't receive a dime for anything health related <laughs>
0: right right we've been trying yeah, and i mean and and did we mention, I mean, all, all of these successes you're describing are happening in Kitwanga right. uh, with pretty pretty minimal infrastructure yes. from some of the photos that I've seen, like when yes. you talk about the number of meals and the successes with uh, you know, Red Seal Chef even training yes. level. Um, so there's so much our, opportunity. Our,
1: our kitchen is a woodshed, and I'm not exaggerating. A Just wood imagine shed. a small woodshed you know, and that's our kitchen. Yeah. And and we received a small grant from Northern Health. They were fantastic, by the way, shout out to Northern Health, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, they received a small grant to purchase a tractor attachment and expand our kitchen. So we, we took that small woodshed and we doubled the size of the woodshed last year.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there's room, definitely room to grow. It sounds like, and this is a expanding thing and we'll, we'll, we'll definitely um, link to Tea creek website in the show notes etc for people who want to learn more and tying back it, this is hopefully opened some people's eyes and and busted some myths and also shared the kind of innovation that's going on up there with what you're doing um that's can has a big role to play in improving the resiliency of our communities all throughout british columbia and, and hopefully eventually beyond what people listening to this how how could non-indigenous farmers ranchers what are some ways that you could see of supporting our indigenous neighbors to connect with agriculture develop food production capacity and just like where can we support this and actually mm. move forward with some of these reconciliate r- what what I've heard you call reconciliation
1: yeah yeah well I think getting th- some good background information first is critical I think you recommended a good audiobook you're listening to Tristan which I've actually ordered it ordered in the book so because I want to check it out Um, And uh, yeah, so first I'd start with researching the history of where where you are um, and finding out the history of the land you're on as much as possible because, you know, 99% chance it was occupied by Indigenous people actively used for food production most likely, and it would be really good to try and figure that out as a step one. Um, And then step two, I think it's really important to let Indigenous people take the lead. So if somebody wants to come to your farm or your ranch, let's say say for a tour, like to ask them, hey, what do you want to learn? Like, what do you, what do you, you, don't assume, like, what do you want to take away from this? Um, Because that's what we do. We, you know, if you bring your class, school class here, um, we have self-directed pieces of it, like, hey, do you want? What do you want to learn? If you want to learn this, go with. You want to learn uh, mechanics, go with Noah. You want to learn tractor operation, go with Joel. You want to learn vegetable harvesting, come with Jacob. You know. Um, and I, I think one thing I want to red flag that we ran into last year that was pretty serious um, is just the cultural insensitivity that can be there on modern farms and ranches. So the the really quick story I have to tell is that here you know in our language we don't differentiate ourselves from the natural world in 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 and sometimes people don't realize that anymore but it's it's embedded in our language here and you'll see that reflected in like our clan system is all based around animals so like i said i'm an eagle clan i'm skeek i'm eagle um and you know we are closely related to the ravens you know the kanada the ravens um and, you know, we had a class go to a, a ranch for a tour and they were killing ravens and stringing them up around the mm-hmm. farm. And it was devastating. It was like they just watched their relatives, you know, being strung up. And so, yeah, so there was some severe emotional, just, you know, people being distraught, seeing seeing these, these dead ravens strung up. Um, and, and, and the, 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 the ranchers had, didn't think twice, you know, it wasn't even a consideration or a thought, you know, and I'm, and I don't even know that they're aware that they caused that, that strife mm-hmm. and, and I'm not even sure how to approach it. Right. Because it's kind of like, right. it's, it's such a challenging, but it's, it's, it's one of those bridges that if we want to be reconciliatory, um, there is an indigenous worldview and culture, um, that exists and, um, that is real and that um, still to this day can conflict with parts of our mainstream culture. And we can be incredibly disrespectful or insensitive without even realizing it necessarily. So I, I would tread carefully, you know, I would say, say yeah respectfully carefully you know what I just tell people like imagine you're visiting another country I hate to say it but like you know before before I I go to the Czech Republic I try and learn some Czech words I try and learn a bit about their history and their culture and you know so I'm a respectful guest (laughs) and uh, Mm -hmm. and and the fact is we are on indigenous land and we are we are guests um you know I'm a guest in Gitsan territory even though I am I'm indigenous but I'm not from here originally so I play that role I play the guest role here And I try to tread carefully, so, uh, Mm -hmm. and respectfully. So, yeah.
0: And this is, this is a little jump back, but what, what resources would you recommend to folks who want to learn more about these topics we've been discussing and hopefully recalibrate their view of indigenous food production and food systems? Um,
1: I think it depends on what kind of person you are, like how your brain works. Um, One of the favoriteest books I've ever read. I think I shared this with you, Tristan. Is Grizzlies and White Guys? It's called, and you'll see it in tourist kiosks and such. Um, And it is authentic, which is why I love it. You know, it's it's verbatim this elder's stories and of his oral history, and it's so entertaining and wonderful. So if you're the kind of person who grasps on grasps onto narratives and stories, and you know you want to be like listening to somebody talk that's a fantastic book um bob joseph's book 21 things you didn't know about the indian act i believe it's called i have it but just in a different room um is also a really great starting point just to basically understand um you know our history in canada and and um the legal reality <laughs> that indigenous first nations people have had to live under in this country for a very very long time and then there's this one that i have yet to read but it was recommended by a trusted source. It's called Indigenous Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S, Indigenous Rights. And it's a myth-busting. So it is a guide to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit issues in Canada. And the whole idea of it is it it basically takes on um, myths and conceptions that Canadians have and debunks them in a book. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so those are the ones I recommend. If you want to dive into a case study of the theft of Indigenous land and how it happened in Canada in very recent history, this one's amazing. It's called Shared Histories. It's the name of the book, Shared Histories, uh, by Tyler McCreary. And it's called and Settler Relations in Smithers, B.C., from 1913 to 1973. So it fills in this modern period of land theft and how this narrative that I just shared with you of indigenous and colonial kind of working together, more or less, like there's some mutual benefit there. And then it picks up right where the oppression gets severe, which is, you know, in this case, 1913. And it culminates in 1967 with the last house being burned down um, within with the uh, Wetton family in the house in 1967, and you know, yeah, I know, I, I'm just like it wasn't that long ago, and uh, no. you know, the 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 way they did it was would be familiar to a lot of people who understand Canadian history, which was um, um, levying huge taxes on Indigenous landowners, much like many times higher than non-Indigenous, and if you couldn't pay your tax they come burn your house down and take your land. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it culminates with that. And, uh, uh, yeah, again, if you're more into the getting into a specific case study and, 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 and reading like the massive research that's behind this, uh, it's incredibly well referenced and indisputable, um, source of that piece of modern history.
0: Yeah. So, Jacob, thank you so much for making the time to share with us. Is there is there anything that we missed that that I missed asking that you'd want to get in here?
1: Just so everyone knows, this is this is just very high level, scratching the surface stuff. So there's lots of opportunity for people to do deep dives and 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 get a little further into this. And and I guess the last thing, Tristan, just to say, if you heard that people Indigenous people weren't there in your wherever you live. I guarantee you it's not true. (laughs) I think you and I talked about that right before and and how there's these modern myths and Smithers is one of them. When I was a kid here in Hazleton in the eighties, people were saying, Oh, Smithers is fine. That Smithers is there because indigenous people weren't there. The land was empty. Well, turns out that's totally not true and it's well documented not true <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah i invite you to not believe that uh, story if you've <laughs> that's what you've been told maybe to have a little bit of a deeper look <laughs> yeah yeah there
0: we go thanks a lot i appreciate it jacob yeah. and uh, i'll let you go now and we'll, i'll catch up to you soon i guess we're, we'll be talking on uh, looks like maybe thursday or whenever our upcoming next yes little gathering meeting is there. yeah yeah sounds good All right, that's about it for this episode. I want to thank the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for the support they provided for this episode. Thank you to Tristan Banwell for doing such a great job guest hosting. Jacob Beaton, thank you so much for sitting down with Tristan. And I also want to acknowledge that all of the music for this podcast is produced by Tristan Banwell's father-in-law, jazz flutist Matt Eckel. Thanks, Matt. All right, it's time to say goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.